This is the last Sunday after Epiphany. Uh, you can have as many as eight Sundays, I think, before you get to the last Sunday, but I think this year we had five. So it just depends on how you figure Easter, how many you do after Epiphany. So if some of you wonder or have wondered once in a while when you're wool gathering during the sermon or the liturgy, that that's actually what it is. Every Epiphany, we begin with the Epiphany, which means manifestation, the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. And we conclude this season every year with an Epiphany, which is the Transfiguration story. So in the Episcopal lectionary, we read the Transfiguration story at the end of the Sundays after Epiphany. In the Roman Church, they read the story of the Transfiguration on the second Sunday in Lent. And there are reasons for doing them both ways. I prefer the one the way we do it. So what I want to talk about is a recapitulation of some of the themes of the Sundays uh, after Epiphany this year. And you know how I love that word, recapitulation. So that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to talk about uh, this year's gospel from Mark about the transfiguration story and uh, see if we can figure out what that might mean, both uh, in terms of the church's great tradition, but also our own internal emotional, spiritual, and mental states when we think about what we're looking forward to. Remember, we're getting into a period now where Baumstark's law is coming into operation. Anton Baumstark lived in the middle of the 19th century, and he had a maxim or a principle. At least graduates of Neshota House know about Anton Baumstark because it was a big. And the maxim is, at the holiest and most solemn times of the year, the most ancient rituals, liturgies, are observed. So Ash Wednesday, which is coming this Wednesday, uh, the things we're going to do then are very old in terms of the history of uh, the Christian liturgy and what it is we do and why we do it. So on Epiphany in the Episcopal Church, we read the story of the visit of the three wise persons <laughs> to the baby Jesus. They were men. They, that's correct. <laughs> but you know, or wise ones. That may be a better way to say that. In any case, uh, the meaning of that reading is that they are coming from all the corners of the known world to acknowledge the universal significance of the incarnation of Jesus' birth, which is what the church and its biblical witness and so on wish to assert. And so they came to do that. And the week after Epiphany, or the Sunday after Epiphany, we celebrate the baptism of Christ. Now, if you're a Greek Orthodox or a Russian Orthodox, uh, you'll read on Epiphany the baptism of Christ, the inauguration of his public ministry. But we believe that it's important, Western Christians believe, to assert first the universal significance and then talk about vocation. Jesus is the beginning of his public ministry. And by extension, it is a connection to all of our baptisms. 
one of the great triumphs of the liturgical movement uh, 50 years ago or more now was the, re the reasserting of the significance of baptism, not understood just as cosmic spot remover, but as the means by which we understand our own vocation as Christian people. And so we understand the baptismal covenant as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life. So this Wednesday, after the 10 o'clock liturgy, sometime between then and 7, I'll come into the church and I'll sit down in the church and I'll open the Book of Common Prayer to the baptismal liturgy and I'll read the baptismal covenant as an examen. And I will ask myself, how have I been doing over the past year? It's a very accessible way to do that without getting into a big elaborate something. Now, I need to say this, though. I'm dwelling on this because the first Sunday after Epiphany is the baptism of Christ in our tradition. So we're talking about Jesus' baptism, the realization of his vocation, and the direction he took after this happened, after he was baptized by John the Baptist. But most people are baptized uh, when they're infants, and certainly people my age uh, were baptized in the Episcopal, if they were, were, were baptized with a liturgy that did not have a baptismal covenant. It's only been the, ren the renewal. Of the, why would that be? Well, it would be because there are a lot of, you know, uh, the Episcopal Church is kind of this amalgam of Catholic theology and uh, uh, Reformation, Continental Reformation theology. It comes together like this in some way, or maybe not. Maybe for some it's like this. So we begin to think about the fact that if you're a Calvinist, which turned out to be the reigning theological outlook on the Protestant side, in my view. If you are a Calvinist, you say, you don't make a covenant with God. What's the purpose of that? God is all, he's omnipotent, omniscient, and immortal. We don't have to, there's no bargain we're making here. No contract. And other people would say, well, wait a minute here. The Bible is replete with examples in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Bible of some sort of covenant being made between God and his people. And so wouldn't that be true with the deepest things in our own lives that we think are important? That we have a connection? There's something that we can do, put into our hands to affirm how, how we feel about this? So the baptismal covenant is an important thing. You know, there's one in the American prayer book. The Canadians have one. The New Zealanders have one. The Australians have one. Uh, a lot, there are a number of provinces in the Anglican Communion that now have a baptismal covenant because they, they woke up. And in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a baptismal covenant of a, of a sorts in the new liturgy since Vatican II. So... We begin focusing on baptism because this is going to pulse through the, the Lenten season. We used to look at Lent as a time when we, you know, gave up stuff, where we, were very, we, we, we did penitential exercises to, to uh, help ourselves uh, 
purify ourselves during this period, and that that was the principal focus of the season. And part of that has to do with the fact that for about um, 1,500 years, the Bible that we used was written in Latin, the Vulgate Bible, St. Jerome. So John the Baptist is in the wilderness, and in the Vulgate it says penitentium agite, do penance instead of repent. You see, there's a difference. The reflection, it's different. I'll have more to say about this uh, as we go forward, but it has something to do with the whole idea of how you look at your life in a new way. And so the baptismal covenant is the means by which you can do that. Will you seek and serve Christ and others, loving your neighbor as yourself? So how have I been doing with that? You know, instead of saying, I need to now get on my knees with an armload of gladiolas and go up the steps on my knees into the shrine. The next week, we talked about uh, what authority is. What do Episcopalians understand about how we, wh what is authoritative for us that help we look to to say what direction should I go in this particular way or how have we done this in the past? The tradition with a capital T. Not to freeze ourselves there. Most people, by the way, confuse tradition with traditionalism. And I've told you a gazillion times Mason Williams' story about that on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour back in the 1960s. It dates me, I know. But the fact is that uh, we have looked at this in a particular way, and often, you know, in the Episcopal Church, some people say the seven last words in the Episcopal Church are, we have never done it that way before. <laughs> So the tradition with a capital T has something to do with what we think about how we understand and interpret the Bible. What is the tradition? And how is our human reason and experience connect to this and those things in some way? You know? <clears throat> Paul speaks about the tradition and he talks about not handing it down, but handing it over. And there's a difference, isn't it? It's like, you take this now, I am passing this on to you, and you now need to look at this and understand how it may fit with what it is that you're doing in your life, and how as a people we understand ourselves in ways perhaps different than in the past, and how we can affirm what we understood to be so in the past. So the readings this, this time were about that. Then I talked about St. Paul. I try to avoid getting into that too much because uh, it's sort of unfair to, to uh, you know, get all over Paul. But Paul sometimes, I sit at 8 o'clock in the morning at the liturgy. Sometimes I'm there while someone is reading something from 1 Corinthians. And I'm thinking to myself, here I am sitting here. I'm the rector of St. Luke's Church, and I'm only getting about 10% of this. <laughs> you know? And I've been to school. 
<laughs> so, so the thing is, you, you need to do a little careful reading about this, and you'll discover why Paul is uh, a giant in the Christian tradition, you know. So Paul is important, and what, why it's important is because all of the, the, the new scholarship of the last 40 years has talked about the centerpiece of Paul's understanding of Christianity has to do with participation, participation in Christ, with understanding how uh, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and growth. And he's the one who has uh, very tightly reasoned, sometimes almost tortuously reasoned, the way in which we understand what that means, you know. It's not just acquittal. It's participation. And a whole lot of evangelical Christianity has focused on acquittal, right? Justification by faith. Diakasune theo. And it's a very narrow point in the way Christians uh, behave when we think about what that means. That is the moment when you believe, when you come to believe, you are acquitted. And the acquittal that comes has nothing to do with your moral character. Nothing. It's like being in a court of law and the judge finds you not guilty. There's no pronouncement being made about your moral character of any kind. That's a bitter pill for some to swallow. So we talked about Paul and what he was saying about that, and now we come to the transfiguration story. Here's what Father Thomas Keating says about the transfiguration. I love this. Some of you may find it. Uh, some, I don't know. On the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. That is to say, the divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. The transfiguration manifests the kind of consciousness that Jesus enjoyed, which was not bound by the three-dimensional world. The spacious world of unity with the ultimate reality enabled him to be in direct contact with all creation, past, present, and future. And so the story of the ascension at the end has to do with him now transcending space and time. That's what it means. That's what the, the biblical witness tells us about what occurred in that particular case. There's something in uh, Eastern Christian theology, Orthodox theology, um, th that refers to the uncreated light. <clears throat> That, pe that people, let, let me, in the most simple terms, have you ever seen, some, seen somebody after not seeing them for a long time and things are going particularly well for them and you look at them and they look different? You know, so you say, gee, you look great. And you can see it on their face. Their face shines in some ways, in certain cases. When I was in seminary, I came back to San Francisco for a meeting with the uh, institutional minions of the process towards ordination. And I went to the Trinity Institute, which is a 
I don't think we call it that anymore. Just, but Trinity Church Wall Street sponsored a series of uh, events uh, throughout the country every year, a couple of years, and they'd be in different locations. And this is before even being able to see it on TV everywhere. You had to, the people came. So at Grace Cathedral, the, the uh, Trinity Institute had uh, Brother Roger Schultz, who was one of the founders of the Teze community. And the Teze community in its origins is Protestant. It's a, a reformed a religious community of people who live like monks and you know but it's was from a different theological tradition than the great western tradition so brother roger was there and during a break of a friend of mine who was working for the trinity institute said would you like to meet him and i said yeah sure so as you come, come, come with me and I'll take it, you can sit, I'll introduce you and you can meet him. So we went into like the blue room over here and he was there and I met him and he had it, the uncreated light. His face shone. He was a man at home with himself. You know Athanasius' story about St. Anthony of the desert? Anthony, the English say. St. Anthony has gone and lived as a hermit for 25 years out in the desert in a cave. And so it gets around that he's coming out of his cave. St. Anthony is going to come out of his cave. And everybody has gone out there to see him coming out. You know? So St. Anthony comes out. All these people are there. St. Athanasius said, Anthony came out. He was a man who had not, uh, did not appear to have wasted himself with grievous austerities. He was a man who was uh, not particularly happy to see us, or for that matter, not particularly sad to see us. He was a man at home with himself. He was a man at home with himself. I don't know. I think sometimes it would be nice to have somebody say that about me or about any of you. I would be delighted to hear, you know, that you're at home with yourself because that's not easy. And so when we talk about the transfiguration experience, it has something to do with uh, the fact that it isn't something you just see in the story about Jesus, but that people can speak about how this has happened to them. Now, one of the dangers with this is what we call, you've heard this term, mountaintop experiences, right? You have a, a period, it's like Joseph Campbell in his interview with Bill Moyers or whoever it was. And he said, when I was on the track team at Columbia University, I was at the track and I was standing in the stadium by myself and for a split second, I knew exactly who I was and I knew exactly what my place in the universe is. 
I had absolute direct knowledge of that. Just for a moment. And he came to call that, you know, your bliss. Follow your bliss. So that's the kind of thing that can happen to people. And there's a downside to that because some of us want to have one over and over again and get worried, nervous, and upset because we haven't had one. So we, Peter comes in, the guileless individual in the New Testament, and he's frightened when this is occurring, and he says to Jesus, boy, it's a good thing we're here. We should make three booths or dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I guess that he's thinking, we can just sit in here for, for eternity, right? And freezing the moment. And a lot of us would like to do that. Sometimes we've had wonderful experiences, not of some deep spiritual, intellectual thing, but an emotional thing. Some occasion where we were, we felt just so good. And we would want that to go on forever. And instead, the paradox is, is that we have that, if we do, and then we're being called into a deeper and fuller future. And that's part of God's understanding. My father, Keating, talks about the trans... This is something that influences the past, the present, and the future, and how we understand that. So the story of the transfiguration is a setup to get us ready for the purpose of moving through Lent, self-examination, repentance, a way of understanding uh, ourselves in a better and deeper way, and we're getting prepared for that, and there's going to be some things that happen along the way that aren't particularly pleasant. And in the biblical narrative, we come down from the mountain after the transfiguration, and they're all going to head to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to get killed. So that's what's going to happen. And so we're going to have to make some sense out of that. I know when Ernest and I were in seminary, most of the New Testament scholars said, well, this is a resurrection appearance that has been editorial play, editorially placed in this location before this is what's going to happen. And there's plenty of uh, reason for saying that. But my own view is that... Um, if it isn't a resurrection appearance, it was an opportunity for them, the people that were there with Jesus, to see him in depth before all this happened. So have you ever had an experience in your life where you have, even for a split second, understood this? Understood it. Cold. From cold. You knew, this is what it is. I get it all now. All the pieces have been put together. For me as a little boy, that was when I could read. When that happened, it was like, two, it was like uh, a code that I had broken. And it was like the scales had fallen from my eyes. Because this now... Being able to do this was the means by which I could find out many more things. And it had a great, great, great influence on me. And I was able then to see more things in depth. So the transfiguration story is about that. It's about transformation. Actually, I think the Greek word is 
metamorphos, metamorphoso. And we all know about that word, right? Metamorphosis, like, like a uh, grasshopper or whatever, a butterfly. So that's something that everybody's capable of and can do. So as we move towards Ash Wednesday, uh, don't figure out, uh, sit here figuring out what uh, penances you're going to uh, load onto yourself. But think about how you can move in some sort of a transformative direction. And think, uh, be able to do the piece that is, all, is painful from time to time, and that is not figuring out the punishments you're going to inflict on yourself, but to be able to conduct a fearless and searching moral inventory. That's the time to do this. Lent. So we have our work cut out for us. Amen. Amen.